Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show continues our tradition of taking Hemingway at his word and playing one true sentence with one of our honored guests, where we choose one sentence from Hemingway's work, and then, as Hemingway says, go on from there. Today's show, we are honored to have Deborah A. Modelmog as our special guest. Deborah A. Modelmog is a scholar and teacher of 20th century American literature, modernism, and sexuality studies. She is the author of Reading Desire in Pursuit of Ernest Hemingway and the co-editor with Suzanne Delgizzo of Ernest Hemingway in Context. She has published a number of essays on Hemingway's sexology and other authors and topics of 20th century American literature, film, and television. Modelmog is a member of the editorial board of the Hemingway Review and of the advisory board of the Hemingway Letters Project. She currently serves as the dean of the College of Liberal Arts at University of Nevada, Reno. Deborah Modelmog, welcome to One True Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's a delight to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So why don't we start as we always do? What is your one true sentence and why? So my one true sentence comes from Ernest Hemingway's short story, The Sea Change. Um, And the sentence is spoken by um, the young woman of the story. Um, And she says, we're made up of all sorts of things. Okay. So we need to back up a little bit because first of all, I think even somebody really familiar with Hemingway who's read 20 Hemingway stories might not have gotten to the sea change. So can you tell us a little bit about the story and then we can home in on the story, on the line itself? Yeah, I I think that's an important um, move, Mark. Um, When I first read the story, I was a graduate student at Penn State University um, and I had to keep looking at the um, sort of byline because I couldn't believe that Ernest Hemingway had written this story. And, and that just showed my ignorance of the time. But I think it also shows um, how some of the stories that explore other topics that maybe aren't seen as, as manly or as macho um, as what we're, we expect from Hemingway, um, they're out there. We just we just um, have to look around and, and dig into them. And once we do, we start to see those themes everywhere in his work. So the sea change is about a, a young couple in Paris. Uh, they're at a bar um, and they're breaking up. Um, it starts in the middle of the breakup and you don't quite know what's going on. But as the story progresses, you start to discern. And this is this is typical ellipt- elliptical Hemingway. Um, you start to discern that the young woman is leaving the man who is named Phil uh, for another woman. Um, And he wants her to stay. And she says she can't stay. Um, She has to to leave and and pursue this desire that she has. Um, And so it's a story of uh, a a young couple trying to come to terms with uh, their own sexual history. And then the girl's current decision to uh, leave the young man and go off with a, another woman. 
Um, at one point in the story, he says, um, if only it were a man. And she says, you know, it wouldn't be. Um, and he keeps trying to get her to um, reverse her desire and her decision. And she says, not, not that she won't, that she can't. And so it just shows the power of that desire for her and how she feels that she has to leave this relationship in order to be honest to herself and her desire. So Hemingway's publishing this as part of his collection, Winner Take Nothing in 1933. Is there something in his life that is going on or has always gone on that would make him drawn to such a scenario and such a topic? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's a number of ways to approach that question. Uh, one is that he's, you know, been to Paris and he's seen um, a lot of uh, sort of transgressive couples, uh, you know, two men and, and a, a woman living together or two women and a man living together. He has met a lot of lesbians. Um, he's met Pauline, whose sister is um, a lesbian. But then there's also... Um, you know, his own life where he is exploring some of these transgressive desires first with Hadley and then with, um, with Pauline. And so I think he is very interested in the, this sexuality of his time period, the sexual science in particular of his time period, um, looking to it for ideas, um, for his own life about how, uh, he himself is a sexual human being and, and the kinds of, um, uh, sort of comments that there are or thoughts there are about sexuality, um, but also looking to it um, as a way of, like it's kind of taking over the way that we think about sexuality. It's moving from, the way we think about sexuality is moving from uh, the courts and religion into medicine and the clinic. And so Hemingway is fascinated with the works that are coming out from the sexologist, and he's reading them you know, very religiously sending copies to his friends and to um, to Hadley, who are sending the copies back and saying it's too much for them, but it's not too much for Hemingway. He's interested in the question of what's normal and what's not normal, which is what the sexologists were looking at. And so I think he's looking at that both from a perspective of character development, but also from a perspective of his own life um, and yes. what it means to be a man that has desires that are different from the norm. And Deborah, with that in mind, the line that you chose, we're made up of all sorts of things. Is this a kind of a material argument for desire or sexuality? What drew you to that line particularly? And what does that tell us about Hemingway? Yeah, so you forced me to choose only one line, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> but I do want to back up a little bit and say that the sentence or that her, her speech act starts with no. Right. No, she said, we're made up of all sorts of things. You've known that you've used it well enough. And what she's referencing is the man's accusation that her desire for another woman is first a vice. And she says, that's not very polite. And so vice puts it into the realm of morality or the religion and, and the church. Um, and then he calls it a perversion. Um, and that puts it into the realm of the clinic, because that was the term that the sexologists were using at the time to think about non-normative sex. And for many of them, it didn't come with particular uh, sort of um, meaning, uh, sort of negative meaning. It was just um, a reference to something that was a turning away, you know, that was different from that's what where the perversion sort of the etymology of it is a turning away. 
Um, so a turning away from reproductive sex, so sort of normative sex. Um, but they didn't attach any sort of negative meaning to it. But of course, perversion has negative meaning in our society. And by 1933, when Hemingway's writing this story, Havelock Ellis is actually officially rejecting the word perversion, saying that it comes with all sorts of negative baggage and that it's been bad for the people to whom it's been attached to. So what we see is the girl making the same kind of move. I'd like it better if you wouldn't use words like that, the girl said. There's no necessity to use a word like that. What do you want me to call it, Phil says. You don't have to call it. You don't have to put any name to it. That's the name for it. And then she says, no, we're made up of all sorts of things. You've known that. So I see this sentence as an indication of Hemingway's interest in sexology, his knowledge of sexology. That whole that whole exchange is um, references that. But it's also him using a strategy that many writers of the time, many people of the time were using, which was, no, you don't have to put a name on it. We're made up of all sorts of things. So talking back to sexology and saying, don't pigeonhole me, don't put me into this sort of um, abnormal category. Uh, this is a perfectly normal feeling that I'm having, and I am going to defy and deny that attribution. Stay tuned for this word. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I read it cover to cover every time we see it. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org slash journals. Deborah, this may emphasize your point because the man in the story ends up saying, all right, all right, although we're not quite sure how he says all right, all right, if it's just all right, all right, stop arguing, stop making a scene, or if he's like, all right, all right, I see your point. But then by the end of the story, it seems as if there is a more positive attitude towards the woman's transgression. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I'm trying to identify where in this story Hemingway's own sentiments lie. And as you were as you were uh, suggesting in your point, it's one of the most famous famously quoted Hemingway things. All I know about morality is what you feel good afterwards is is moral and what you don't is immoral or something along those lines. So is can we can we is that fair to say that the man's change of attitude or change of mind, change of mood in this story is reflective of where Hemingway is as a writer. I think to a certain extent, I also think he's, he's thinking from the girl's point of view, from the woman's point of view um, in a, in a um, excised line from uh, for whom the bell tolls uh I don't know if many people remember this, but Pilar has desire for um, Maria just as, as she does for men. And so she kind of talks a little bit about her bisexuality. But at one point in the novel, she says, I do not make perversions. I only tell you something true. Um, and that's that kind of idea of, you know, you're putting this into a category and I'm just trying to tell you my true desire. And please don't put that um, that name or that label on me. And so I think what you see is um, the story starts in the middle and Phil is trying to say to the, to the young woman, you know, doesn't what we have, you know, mean anything to you? You know, why would you want to leave me? But when she says, 
you've you've known that you've used it well enough. We understand that there was a sexual contract there between the two of them, and they were doing something that was outside the norm. And so it's uh, ironic that he's sort of throwing it back in her face and saying, "Well, now this is a perversion." And she's like, "No, how could you? You know, given yes. what we've done together, how could you think that this is a perversion?" And we never know exactly what they've done together, but I think Hemingway is at that point. Um, disidentifying with Phil and saying, uh-huh. "Okay, yeah, you're, you, you know, people use these um, these strategies to try to make themselves feel better, and you know, by by condemning somebody else who's doing the same thing that they were doing. Um, but you have to reflect on it and say, hey, I maybe I didn't do exactly what she was doing, but I've done something that's abnormal as well, according to the sexologist, and I need to accept that." I need to accept that there's all sorts of desires out there and, and she is entitled to her own desire. Right. So we mentioned earlier that this story comes out in 1933 in your career where you've analyzed how Hemingway presents this topic and topics like it. Do you find that there was an evolution in Hemingway's consideration of sexuality and gender or is this fairly typical and consistent throughout his writing? Um, so I think he he was, I, when I first read this story, I did not n- even know about sexology. Nobody had introduced me to that. I didn't know that there were, that the term homosexual and heterosexual were sort of invented in the late 19th, early 20th century, that there were all these um, anti-normative desires, fetishism, masochism, um, sadism that were all sort of um, put together by the sexologist and rolled out for people to say, you know, these are abnormal and, and this is what's normal. And some of the sexologists were actually very uh, sort of progressive. And part of what they were trying to do was to value women's sexual desire. They were arguing that women were just as sexual as men and had just as deep a sexual desire. Um, they were trying to think about what marriage was. And I think when you see, um, when you read A Farewell to Arms, you can see that kind of conversation going on there. Does marriage have to have a piece of paper behind it? Or is it right. something that two people kind of join into a, in, a, in a contract? And so when I started to find out about sexology and the sexual science of the age, I realized how much Hemingway was immersed in that conversation. And actually, like a lot of people were immersed in it, you know, but they were reading about the sexologist. Hemingway was actually reading the sexologist. And so as I started to kind of explore what the sexologists were saying, it just seemed to me that, you know, it was everywhere in his work that he was immersed in that um, sexual science, was really thinking about what it meant. And as he aged and got more involved in some of the sexual transgressions of the time, you can see him hitting back against sexology even harder and harder. And so, you know, the strategy of sort of, no, I'm going to resist these sexual sex, sexology um, attributions is just one strategy that he used. Um, he also used a strategy of trying to move his uh, sexual desire into a tribal or utopian space. And so, for example, in the secret pleasures um chapter that has recently been returned to a movable feast. He says, we lived as savages and kept our own tribal rules and had our own customs and our own standards, secrets, taboos, and delights. Wow. So it individualizes sex- sexuality and tr- tries to 
make that sexual experimentation, that sexual perversion becomes sexual experimentation, sexual adventurism, um, and not something that the sexologist can pin him down on. When I was considering across the river and into the trees for a longer time than most people in a, any kind of a healthy scenario <laughs> should consider across the river and into the trees. Uh, what struck me was in that really famous chapter of sexuality in the uh, gondola, um, how elliptically Hemingway treats sexuality or or uh, we could use the word perversions or transgressive uh, sexualities. And even in this story, the sea change, uh, which ends in, he says, uh, uh, Phil says, I, I said I was a different man, James. He's talking to the bartender. Uh, looking into the mirror, he saw that this was quite true. You look very well, sir, James said. You must have had a very good summer. And so it it, it seems like he always treats uh, this topic in an oblique manner that's there if you're looking for it, but it seems like it's very easy to pass over. Um, can we talk a little bit about the ending of this story and what Hemingway is presenting to us? Yeah, it's a, it's a curious ending and the people in the bar are also curious characters um, because at one point we go into, well, it seems like we're going into James's head, the, the bartender's head. Um, but then it says, no, he wasn't, he wasn't thinking about that. Um, so we learned something, but then immediately we realize that it's not being learned through the bartender, it's being learned through the narrator. So um, James and the two customers at the bar are very interesting characters. And when Phil goes to the bar, they move over to make room for him. And then they move over even further to make him feel even more comfortable. So it seems that he's settled into something, you know, that he is recognizing that this might be a community that he belongs to. We don't know the gender of the two customers at the bar, but some people have speculated they're men um, in the manuscript. And I, I always am careful about going to the manuscript because I don't, you know, he cut things out for a reason and it could be to make it more elliptical or it could be because he thought it was, was bad writing and he just wasn't, didn't want it in there. But in the manuscript, he says, give me what the punks drink, James. Um, and punks is a slang term for homosexual. Um, so whether he whether he's suggesting that, you know, he himself recognizes that he has homosexual tendencies or whether he's just saying, I belong to this group of, of people that the sexologists have identified as anti-normal or, or abnormal. Um, he seems to have joined that community and say, you know, I'm accepting who I am now. Yes. And so the last sequence, the word different is thrown around many, many times, several times. But then he says, as he considers himself in the mirror, I'm a different looking man. It's almost as if he's had a metamorphosis. Right. Um, what a curious, what a curious way to, um, to describe that, to describe that sort of coming into a new attitude for the, for this. Um, we also see that, I mean, maybe the extension of this is the Garden of Eden. And I'm thinking about in a lot of your responses, uh, people are saying, oh, the posthumous novel, The Garden of Eden. So we see a new side of Hemingway. And you're pointing out it's really all throughout his career that he is examining these issues. And The Garden of Eden might be the most concentrated or elaborate. Is that uh, how do you how do you piece together The Garden of Eden and all of this, um, yeah. all of these ideas? Yeah, I I agree. And I think The Garden of Eden is... Um, just an extended 
um, intense analysis of some of the things that he was dealing with early in his life. And the fact that he couldn't publish it, didn't, couldn't figure out how to bring it into print, but it, he just kept going on and on and on trying to uh, figure out a way to get there. Um, to me, that suggests that he understood the kind of danger of what he was doing, that if he got something out there that was quite uh, different from what most people were familiar with in terms of a Hemingway novel, uh, that he would not necessarily be seen as sexually adventurous and, you know, kind of a new age guy. He would be seen as somebody who was per- perhaps himself perverse and and the whole card of how the house of cards would come crumbling down. You know, I want to go back to what you said about the the, the focus on difference at the end of um, of the sea change and connect it to the Garden of Eden. So uh, one of the things that I've worked on a lot is how um, Hemingway and other writers of the time were moving from an idea of sexual deviancy to an idea of sexual difference. And so trying to, and, and I'm not the first critic to have said this, but trying to take these sort of queer sexualities and move them into just just queer difference, right? We're, we're all different. We all have these, these different ways of being. And so by the time he's working on the Garden of Eden, Kenzie is, is the sexologist that is very popular at that time. Um, and I think you see Kenzie's influence, even though Kenzie was also influenced by Havelock Ellis. And so I think you see um, Kenzie's influence when Marita says, um, no, you know, I can give you I can give you the same thing that Catherine gave you, but without the remorse. It's not perversion. It's infinite variety. And so, again, this moving from deviance to difference, you know, there's sexual differences here and we're all we're all different. Let's let's embrace our differences and not not talk about deviancy anymore. Deborah, would you please read the sentence for us one more time? Sure. So the sentence is, we're made up of all sorts of things. This has been such a fascinating chat. Deborah Matamog, thank you for playing One True Sentence with us here on One True Podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. It was a pleasure. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at one true pod. That's the number one true pod. Or email us at one true pod at gmail.com. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department of the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,